Hello, welcome to Converging Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonilla. On uh, this episode, I'm happy to bring my conversation with C.W. Goodyear, uh, Charlie. Uh, Charlie is a historian and uh, biographer. He has uh, attended uh, Yale University. He has a degree in global affairs and currently is in uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, his uh, newest book is on President Garfield. And that's what we talk about. The book is called President Garfield from Radical to Unifier, and it is about the 20th United States president, and it is fantastic. Um, as we talk about in the conversation, um, a lot of people do not know about uh, President Garfield or about the so-called Gilded Age, which is where he's at kind of the beginning of. So you basically have Civil War, Reconstruction period, and then you get this kind of Gilded Age. And many people will know Garfield as the the second uh, out of four uh, presidents that have been assassinated. Um, but really, and, and, and many people have written about that uh, assassination uh, uh, that happened to him. And so, you know, his presidency is only six months, roughly. And so, you know, I think um, a lot of people... Uh, have not really written about his life and his time in the House of Representatives. And I think he, uh, Charlie mentions in the conversation, it's, it's been about 40 years since there's been a kind of full, uh, you know, birth to death, you know, biography on on, on uh, Garfield. And, um, and so his book is uh, very timely and it's very good. It is very good. I, I really enjoyed uh, reading it and uh, it was, it was quite enjoyable and, and very accessible for, for most people. So that's what we talk about. In the conversation, um, we begin by talking about uh, an overview of of Garfield. You know who he was as a person. You know what he did in his life. We talk about the background, context, and the temperament of Garfield, especially when he was uh, younger and he was growing up. We talk about how he rose to being a general so quickly and fought in the Civil War, and then we talk about his time in the U.S. House of Representatives, which is where he spent a, a, a large part of his time. I think it's twenty years. And his emphasis on civil service reform, Department of Education, uh, taking care of the census, things like that. And, you know, shortly after the election of 1876, which was a very, very, very contested election, um, you know, by historical standards and, and even by today's standards, um, you know, his was the next election, 1880. And so we talk about the kind of centrist moderate platform Garfield ran on for president and why that was needed. You know, in historical context, after election of '76, and we talk about what he did in those six months as president, and then we we briefly talk about assassination of of, of Garfield. Um, he took about eighty days to to finally pass after he was he was um, injured, and uh, we talk about the the legacy of of Garfield and why we should remember him and why he's important to remember and why his story is is more. Um, relevant than ever. And um, I really liked the subtitle of the book, Radical to Unifier. Uh, Charlie does a really good job of explaining how, you know, for, for you know, uh, modern day context, it would probably maybe be seen as a kind of progressive. Um, that's not a precise thing. It's just a kind of example. And how he kind of became more moderate over time to really unify the country. And that's a really important lesson, I think, that you can keep a lot of, uh, you know, radical or, or, if you will, progressive sensibilities. And um, But I think that, you know, it's, it's a big country. There's a lot of people and not everyone's going to agree with you. And how do you reach people that are 
maybe not in your same kind of camp, if you will. And, and Garfield definitely tried to do that with his work in the House and, and becoming president, even though it was uh, short-lived. So um, super, super important. Um, Charlie is, is absolutely fantastic. He was, he was just so um, enthusiastic, and he was uh, an absolute joy to talk to and just have a lot of, a lot of energy, and, and I really enjoyed talking with him. I think he's, he's a great guy, uh, super sharp. And, um, and I, I really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, as always, you can find this conversation, all other you know, past and upcoming conversations at convergingdialogues.substack.com. Subscribe, follow, tell your friends, share widely. Uh, you can engage there as well. Also on YouTube, uh, same thing. And um, go get uh, Charlie's book. Uh, so now I bring you C.W. Goodyear. I'm here with C.W. Goodyear, uh, Charlie. Uh, thanks so much for uh, coming on the podcast. I'm uh, very much looking forward to uh, talking with you. Oh, yeah, me too. Uh, thank you for having me, Xavier. Yeah, absolutely. So you have written a fantastic biography on uh, a president that most people probably don't know uh, in a time that's not familiar for a lot of Americans. But uh, as, uh, as you state in the book, and as I also agree, a pretty interesting time, in some ways consequential, and also uh, there's a lot of parallels we can we can make in terms of how history uh, is always kind of relevant in certain ways. So before we get into the book, why don't you uh, tell listeners uh, who you are, what your background's in, and uh, any of the other particulars? Sure. Uh, so my name is Charlie Goodyear. Uh, my writing name is C.W. Goodyear. And uh, my background is that I'm a a biographer based in Washington, D.C., which is the right place to be based if you're interested in what I am, which is um, the, uh, the political history of America and some of the undiscovered figures of our past. Uh, and in the course of my studies and uh, in my diving into, as you describe it, the uh, relevant chapters of our history to today, I ended up finding, as you also describe it, one of our one of the undiscovered gems of American presidents from our past, and uh, that person was James Garfield, mm -hmm. our twentieth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the the it's uh, it's fantastic. The book the book is called President Garfield from Radical to Unifier. Um, and uh, as we were talking before we got on, there's not a lot of books that have been written on President Garfield, the twentieth U.S. president. There's a handful out there, and they're I guess they're older now. I guess they're kind of 10, 15, 20 years old now. So, yeah. yeah, and, I, yeah. and I don't know. I, I, I mean, again, I'm not close to this kind of uh, uh, history, but I, I don't know when the last time we've had like a full kind of biography on his life. And just, you know, so this is in some ways kind of full redress of, of, of uh, kind of Garfield. Yeah. Well, you describe it. So 10 to 15 years is the normal cadence you see for most famous American presidents that people have heard about. Uh, Lincoln, Washington, Theodore Roosevelt. Typically, we go about 10 to 15 years before somebody somewhere decides that the story needs to be re-examined. Mm -hmm. uh, for Garfield, it's been a little bit longer of a cadence. It's <laughs> been about, uh, it's been close to 40 years, really, since a full birth-to-death biography of the man has been written. Mm. Uh, but, and this is probably where a few of your listeners have heard of Garfield before, there has been a lot of very compelling, very interesting uh, uh, literature about his death. He mm -hmm. was the second president to be assassinated, and he was assassinated in a very dramatic 
also tragically drawn out way. He was shot roughly three months into his presidency. And then he took about 80 days to die. And over the course of that you know, long period of death, it, it was a period of intense drama in the country. And as his health fluctuated and as his doctors came out before the nation and they gave their updates on his health, which were overly rosy, you know, you saw the nation go through this whiplash phase. And so that's uh, and as we were also discussing before we started here, um, the, the spectacle mm-hmm. of that end to Garfield's life has, you know, I'd argue, eclipsed what I think is a much more impressive life mm-hmm. uh, and maybe I'd argue the most impressive personal rise to political power, certainly in that century of American history, but maybe in American history overall. Um, James Garfield was the last U.S. president to be born in a log cabin. He was raised by a single mother. Uh, He actually wasn't even the first James Garfield in his family. He was named after a sibling who had died in infancy before he was born. Uh, and from that started life, you see, you see him follow what this in just this remarkable arc spanning from 1831 when he was born to 1881 when he was died. He, by his late 20s, he was in rural Ohio as a college president, a preacher, and a state senator. And then come the Civil War, he you know, became also the Union Army's youngest general. And then halfway through the Civil War, he was the nation's youngest congressman. And from then on, he proceeded to have a distinguished congressional career, which was almost two decades long, which back in that time, you know, we obviously live in an age of different political standards. now. Uh, But but that was an incredibly long tenure. And over the course of it, he witnessed this revolutionary age in American history, the post-Civil War Reconstruction. And then the beginning of the post-post-Civil War, which was the Gilded Age, which is that time that everybody says we're living in the second iteration of today. If you open an editorial page in most newspapers, mm-hmm. I think about once a week, you'll find somebody with a column saying, did you know that we're in the second gilded age of American history? <laughs> and Garfield was the only, was pretty much the only American on the national stage to be a, a participant in this whole swath of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and along the way, as he's, you know, uh, voting through, uh, he's supporting the Reconstruction Amendment, so the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment that created, uh, in theory, uh, racial equality in America. He's also a practicing Supreme Court attorney. Mm. Uh, he's also uh, writing these incredible historical articles for the Atlantic and the North American Review. Mm. Um, and he's also, in his free time, practicing foreign languages, and he even wrote an original proof of the Pythagorean theorem. Wow. So, Yeah, I mean, it's a breathtaking career. And uh, the the books that have been written so far have focused on the tragic way it ended. And what I've found in the course of this book is that the life is much more impressive, poetic, and I think incredibly significant for the time that we're living in today and the type of America, you know, you and I are living in today as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, no, I totally agree. It's a, it's a very nice, uh, very nice overview. Um, and I, I think it's an interesting period. I always have this. One of the reasons I, I like talking to folks that write about U.S. presidents is, it, I mean, it's easy because, you know, the country's 240 whatever years old. And mm-hmm. um, 
you can understand a lot about the history of the United States through kind of the president from like that vantage point and everything going on around there. It's not the only uh, uh, perspective, but I think it, I find it interesting. We, there is no other country that has a pantheon of mm-hmm. its executives mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. America does. Mm-hmm. We there there is some poetic significance that I can't capture in words yeah. for how Americans treat our presidents, and yeah. we we invest so much. Uh, uh, almost spiritual significance in them. It, mm-hmm. it, it's, a very, it's a very, and as you point out, you can understand the the evolution, the story of our country through these men, mm-hmm. uh, in ways both good and bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sometimes mm-hmm. at the same time, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, it, it, it's it, 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 you know, being here in Washington D.C., one of my favorite things to do is to go to the National Portrait Gallery. Uh, oh, so so it's, it's my it's my favorite museum in, in oh, it's wonderful it's and, and the presidential collection yeah, is yeah phenomenal nice. uh, right. where you can really see these men and uh one of the reasons that i thought this book about this president james garfield would be interesting is because his times uh are so terribly relevant to our own mm-hmm. uh you know it's that mark twain line uh history doesn't repeat itself but it often rhymes mm-hmm. um there are so many themes from that time that both contextualize what we're going through today and also explain them. Mm-hmm. And Garfield's the perfect witness to that. This is a, this is a man who opened every, you know, you've read the book, so you've seen this. Yeah. He opened almost every uh, entry of his 1878 diary with a different Shakespeare quote. Mm-hmm. And, and somebody who has that depth of mind, <laughs> just is a fantastic witness to their times. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, not only that, uh, Garfield was the only person in Reconstruction era Washington who everybody liked mm-hmm. uh, across mm-hmm. the parties. Everybody had something vaguely nice to say about him. And mm-hmm. he was this key, you know, peacemaking figure both within the Republican Party and then across the partisan aisles in Congress. Mm-hmm. And when you read about somebody like that, it it mm-hmm. it, it, it pulls a it pulls a heartstring or two. Mm-hmm. So I found him very interesting. But anyway, so he seemed like a worthy figure to add. To the popular yeah. presidential pantheon to, to, yeah. to, to explore in more depth as this this book does yeah 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 absolutely so i guess uh i want to spend much of the time on actually his time in the in the house obviously the the presidency of a president is always the most fascinating to me personally but uh he was president for was it under six months or just about so um it's much shorter, so we can spend a lot yeah. of time in the house. But um, before we before we get there, I guess just you mentioned that yeah, he was one of the last born in, the, in a log cabin. He was born in in Ohio, which is a free state. So I guess kind of uh, help us understand uh, in the context in which he was born and the environment, both in Ohio and then I guess nationally at the time when he was born, and then a little bit of how as he grew up and with his parents, kind of his flavor of who he was like his temperament what made him tick a little bit of personality again as much as we know you've already mentioned his intellect and a little bit of his worldview but just a little bit more of like what his kind of um if you will profile was uh based yes. on where he came out of and and how he how he was raised yeah so he was born in frontier ohio in an area of the state called the western reserve which mm-hmm. is ironically in the northeastern portion of the state uh modern day cleveland is seen as kind of the capital of the old western reserve it's this little sliver of land that's nestled up right against lake erie 
And when James Garfield was born in born there in 1831, he was born, as you described, in a uh, in a in a log cabin to a working class uh, family of homesteaders. Uh, and his parents were both descended from New England stock. The pattern of migration into that part of Ohio, the Western Reserve, was uh, it, it was primarily coming from Yankee country. Mm. And you can see that in the culture of, of that territory. It was virulently anti-slavery, in parts militantly so. John Brown was, uh, you know, of, of later fame, <laughs> was raised in part of the Western Reserve. And uh, it was described, and this is a nice way it ties in with the geography of the Western Reserve, it was described as the Gibraltar of abolitionism, because it was this tiny little, it was this tiny little island of radicalism in, in, in American politics. It sent its representative in Congress was Joshua Giddings, who was uh, written of by Whigs as being master of all of us in anti-slavery matters. The Western Reserve was actually at one point, and I think this is still true, it's believed to have had the highest concentration of stops on the Underground Railroad of, wow. of any part in the country. Wow. So it's this, it was, by the time Garfield was born, this was 1831, it was this white, working class, rural uh, hotbed of racial progressivism. And these lines in the Underground Railroad, they cut through this frontier part of the country, going straight over Lake Erie to Canada, mm -hmm. because of course, that's where all the slaves were fleeing. Now, uh, so Garfield was born, he was the youngest sibling. Uh, and in 1830, 1831, when he was born, uh, the country was expanding westward. The, the Union, the United States, was uh, kind of haltingly expanding its continental conquest. Mm. And as it was doing so, there was this uh, debate that was stirring again in the heart of the Republic, which was how this westward expansion would impact the growth or uh, shrinkage of slavery. And by extension, what that would do to the, the health of the Union, whether it would break apart or not. And so the country was slowly being confronted by this issue that it had tried to defer the solution of, which is slavery. Since the foundation of the country, uh, the you know the founding fathers themselves tried to defer the resolution of this issue down the line. They kicked that can as hard as they could, mm -hmm. and th this is the way cans get kicked. When it comes time to kick it again. People will do that. And that's exactly what happened. And that's a that's a crude metaphor, but that's exactly what happened as the U Union expanded westward, especially after the Mexican-American War. Uh, these these new political compromises were continually made. Mm. And so the political coalition of the country and the, the makeup of the country was just slowly succumbing to stress fractures over that issue. And that would culminate ultimately in the Civil War, which Garfield would use as his great political launching ground onto the national stage. And he knew that, which is very important. Mm -hmm. As this all related to him, he hated field work, which, which was unfortunate because, you know, where he was born, he was in a poor family. His dad died when he was, when he was about two years old. So he was the only member of his family who couldn't remember his father, mm -hmm. which was, which, which that, that belies a deeper tragedy. He had this amazing quote that I ended up not including in the book. Mm -hmm where he talks about uh, mourning the fact, this is him as the a, a brigadier general in Washington. So he's made it. He, he And he's already, he's about to go into Congress and he's won these great battles in, in, in the Civil War. And he's meeting these young 
Washington clerks. Mm -hmm. And he's writing to his wife at home and saying, if only I had a father and some wealth growing up, what could I have, what more could I have done with my life? Mm -hmm. And so you, you get the sense and this ties into his broader personality, that he was from a young age, he was terribly ambitious. He had this deep intellect. He had, uh, he hated being this, you know, this, this farm worker, this canal worker uh, that he was when he was a teenage boy. And as soon as he discovered school, he pretty much latched onto it with all the effort that he had. And I, I have this quote of his actually before me from, uh, this oration that he gave in one of his early schools. He's still pretty much a teenager at this point. And this is after he gives, he, he's given this honor of addressing his graduating class or his commemoration class. And this is in pretty much high school. Mm -hmm. And he writes after giving this speech, the ice is broken. I am no longer a cringing scapegoat, but I'm resolved to make a mark in the world. I know without egotism that there is some of the slumbering thunder in my soul. Mm. And so he had this entrepreneurial spirit, but also very importantly, he very badly wanted everybody to get along. He, he, he could not stand to have disagreements with uh, what I'd say political enemies, even that at age. Mm -hmm. uh, his classmates at that time, they wrote of him being somebody who would strive so hard to just dominate in the classroom but also do so in a way that celebrates everybody else around him. Mm -hmm. So if you're thinking like you and me, you know, this is probably a kid. He, he's going to steal our thunder in class. Mm -hmm. And that's how he was very young. And mm -hmm. it, it wasn't long before he had grown out of the reserve. He, he had become a big fish in a small pond and he was still very young. And he ended up actually deciding to go to Williams College in Massachusetts to continue his career. So that's when he really started seeing the perspective outside Ohio. Mm -hmm. Um, and he, and again, we're very lucky that he wrote about all of this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's nice to get a peek into his, his, uh, perspective. So obviously he, you know, he, he starts teaching and he becomes state Senator. Um, uh, but I guess right before he gets to the house, he does enter the war and, and fights for the union. And I guess how, well, I guess what was his approach towards actually, you know, taking up arms and fighting? And then, he, like many other things, you know, he just shoots up, becomes one of the youngest generals, and that really felt, you know, when I was reading the book, I felt like that was a big. I mean, at the time, you know, almost like a, a given that he was going to be a, 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 a politician at that point. He was going to be a representative or a senator or something. So, I guess, how did he decide to fight? Uh, what was, I guess, his internal motivations, if we know, and and how he was able to just get all the way up to general so quickly. Sure. Well, so I, a lot of people these days talk about how all of our old politicians back, you know, in this time, a century ago, how they all used to be soldiers and they'd all been veterans in a war. It was much easier to lead men in a war back then. And what I mean by that is not in terms of actually doing the fighting that was, if anything, you know, harder. Uh, but in the U.S. still had this tradition before the Civil War of being an all volunteer force. So when the Union, when the, when the Civil War did come around, what the Union had to do is it had to recruit from civilians. It had to rely on civilians to raise armies of the, or regiments of their neighbors from their communities mm. and uh, then appoint those men to lead all of their neighbors into battle. So Garfield, who was by the Civil War, he was already this influential local man. He was preacher, college president, state senator. He 
had the potential to rally, you know, quite a lot of men to fight for the union cause. And he ended up doing so, and he did so for two main reasons. First is he genuinely believed he had remarkable foresight. He knew that the war was going to be long, Mm -hmm. and he knew that it would eventually become about by narrative. It already was effectively about this, but officially, he knew that it was officially going to eventually become a war of slavery versus freedom. Mm -hmm. And he was writing even before Bull Run uh, of how this was going to be a long, bloody, sanguinary conflict, and that eventually would adopt this freedom aspect in his narrative. And that was way different from what the narrative was at the time. Most people thought the Civil War would be over as soon as the Union Army sent a few, you know, a few people into the South. Mm-hmm. Uh, Garfield saw the end of this, and he saw how important this conflict would be, and it aligned perfectly with his vision for America. Um, he wrote before the outbreak of conflict, May it not be an economy of bloodshed to tell the South that disunion seals the doom of slavery, that if the South forms a government actually based on the monstrous injustice of human slavery, it will be a cane among the nations of the earth. So you can feel the, you know, the religious, the religious narrative is there. The the political belief is there. He wants to be part of this crusading, liberating army. And then second, the second reason he joined, ambition. He knew and his friends knew that joining and fighting in the Union Army would basically be, as you describe, a ticket to political prominence if the war went well. Mm -hmm. And he really hemmed and hawed, you've read the book, about how best to position himself in the army so that he could win all the glory possible and then transition into national politics. And he was very careful about making it seem from a public perspective that he was that 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 none of that was going on. He was trying to appear totally noble. The truth was more complicated. Mm. And then when he, but basically by virtue of luck, he led one of the first successful northern campaigns in the war. Mm. And as soon as he did that, when everything else was going pretty much wrong across the national front, that guaranteed that he was going to be famous nationwide, and he became famous nationwide. And by that point, a congressional transition was inevitable, mm-hmm. and he made it about halfway through the war. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean, he he gets to he gets to the house. Now, this is interesting. I'll, I'll set this up for you, and you can go any direction you want, I guess, on this. But um, <clears throat> as you mentioned earlier, you know, he he has a long tenure there, which at that time was kind of uh, not the norm. I mean, it, nowadays it's kind of the opposite. But <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know he. It's interesting. So you have the Civil War. Obviously, you have, you know, Lincoln gets assassinated. And then there's all of this stuff in the Reconstruction era, which was um in the in the in the in the aftermath of, of the war ending and then Lincoln getting shot and then the impeachment of Johnson, pretty chaotic time. And you get a pretty okay time with Grants, although second term towards the end of Grant starts to get a little a little tricky. And then you have this 1876 election, which is still to this day one of the like craziest presidential elections we've had with with Hayes and uh, Tilden or whatever. Crazy and, so far. We'll crazy so, <laughs> so far. We got an election year coming up next year, so we'll see. No, 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 but um, but uh, but but in this time, so he's he's just he's in the house during this like all of this wild time here, and I guess talk about there's a few there's a few big points here, and you can tackle them any order you want, but. Uh, he's on Ways and Means Committee. He has this vision for Department of Education, which I thought was super interesting. I didn't know that. Uh, his handling of the Census Committee and how that was super important. So just kind of talk about 
um, how he saw himself as a, as a representative and why he was taking on some of these fiscal issues, census issues, his kind of grand idea for Department of Education, uh, how, how all these things came about and, and uh, some of the you know challenges and, and successes he had as a representative. Yeah, I think you could argue that his House career, which was, as you say, was so long. It was just such a uniquely, almost uniquely long stretch in that period. I'd break it into three distinct sections. Okay. Right. Uh, the first of them is when he's the radical. This, mm. is, this is him in the middle of the Civil War, and he is just about as a uh, firebrand of a, what, what I'd say is a reconstructionist mm. as was president in Congress. He was one of Thaddeus Stevens, radical Republicans. So he was, he was um, before Lincoln had, uh, you know, considered and endorsing the outright abolition of slavery and equal racial rights. Garfield was part of this caucus of House Republicans who were in favor of not only the immediate abolition of slavery and the immediate institution of, you know, equal rights uh, across America. He also wanted to um, redistribute uh, plantation land in the South from the owners to the slaves. Mm. Uh, he wanted uh, leading Confederates to be exiled or executed or disenfranchised. Mm. Uh, he, he, There's this great quote he has, so long as I have a voice in public affairs, it shall not be silent until every leading traitor is completely shut out of all participation in the management of the Republic. And so he, he still had, uh, you know, as related to that quote before, he was still as forward leaning as they came in that time mm -hmm. and as uncompromising as they came in that time when it came to reforming. Is that, is that, is that yeah. sorry? Is that kind of like a, just for people's context, almost like sort of how we see kind of some of the, the main progressives of the democratic party, maybe again, different times or whatever. It, it, but... Honestly, it's a common comparison. Okay. It, it, okay. You've heard that a lot of times before. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and it's uh, now, you know, you know, I, I have made the mistake before of, uh, of of naming some people that you might compare to this man uh, in terms of modern context. And, you know, that was a mistake. But yes, no, they, they were he was an extremist and the radical Republicans of Garfield's time. And this is the first stage of his house career. So I'd say it's like 1863 to 1867 about, mm -hmm. you know, they, they're, they're, these are the ones, by the way, who made the 14th and 15th Amendments possible. These are people who, in their refusal to compromise on these core issues that cut to the very identity of America and are all about what the founding ideals of this country, in their refusal to compromise on, they, they achieved great things. But Garfield moved on. <laughs> he, he, the, the, the tide went out for the, for the radical movement, and they started disappearing from Congress mm. for a few different reasons that I'm not going to get too deep into. But I think this next quote of Garfield summarizes it up pretty well. He went on to his second phase, which I'd call his constructive phase. And this is him writing after the Republicans kind of got whipped in some house races that he survived, but a lot of his friends didn't. Mm. He writes this work of, and I insert in brackets, of ending slavery, because that's what he's talking about developed a peculiar kind of talent in the Republican Party, very efficient in its object. It was of the destructive, not the constructive kind. And so as you move deeper into Reconstruction, he starts seeing the political writing on the wall. But then this part of his character that was always present from his youth comes out. And it's this, why can't we all get along? Why can't we be pragmatic and yeah. friends here. And he he extended that not only within Washington, but also nationwide. That increasingly became his view. He's, he started looking out from D.C. and thinking, how can we build this country better? 
and a transition uh, th- th- that almost sounds like build back better, which is, you know, I don't want to get into modern politics again, but he, uh, but, but he started trying to think of common sense solutions to uh, build this framework that America in the post-war period could grow mm-hmm. and, you know, thereby enrich in the entire country. And one of these transition issues that he identified, as you point out, is the Department of Education. Garfield founded the first, as a congressman, the first federal Department of Education in American history. And he did that because uh, he education had been very important in his life. And he believed that some federal authority was necessary to inform, not legis- not not create educational policy, but to inform Congress as it created new education policy for the country. Mm-hmm. He eventually became a very big uh, supporter of public education. He eventually saw that as the great solution to all this country's problems. Uh, but he founded the department because he thought that uh, – the U.S. in this Reconstruction age, as immigrants are not only pouring into the Northeast from Europe, and in the South, you have millions of people who are now, you know, as they always should have been recognized as Americans in the form of former slaves. Mm -hmm. Um, He's he's writing, shall we enlarge the boundaries of citizenship and make no provision to increase the intelligence of the citizen? So he saw this as this common sense thing to uh, build the country up. It did not. It was not an easy ride. He, 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 as you read in the book, his his idea, this department, it wasn't even his idea. He borrowed it off of somebody else. Yeah. He was its congressional uh, spearhead, and he had to fight off a lot of, frankly, racist attacks mm. from critics who were trying to strip funds, funds from it. And it was not an entirely happy story. But he shifted into this, as you described. Um, you know, he started thinking more about the census. He started thinking about balancing the nation's finances. He became the f- fiscal whiz kid of the House in from basically the late 1860s through to the mid 1870s. And so he uh, dictated a lot of the ways that the U.S. responded to um, uh, its public spending in the aftermath of the Civil War, which is an incredibly important issue. Uh, and he saw the census and statistics in particular as another way of making sense of informing smart, constructive public policy and reconstruction. And then the last phase of his house career is, you know, you mentioned the second half of the grant uh, regime as being you're starting to see some creaks. Uh, he became this party conciliator. He became this mem- it, it, the Republican Party itself at that time had become splintered into these two incredibly named factions. You had the Stalwarts on one side, who were huge supporters of President Grant and all that he represented, good and bad. And then you had the half-breeds, who were uh, very colorfully named, but they were led by James Blaine, the magnetic man, this great friend of Garfield's, but somebody that Garfield had always seen as way too ambitious for his own good. And Garfield was this figure who was desperately trying to keep the party, the Republican Party, intact and trying to, again, um, be this reasonable, pragmatic middle ground, not only for fellow Republicans, but also for the country at large. And that culminates, as you point out, in the 1876 election, Mm -hmm. the first disputed presidential election in American history. And when I say that, I mean, it's the first election we had where essentially half the country, for a variety of reasons, dismisses its result as fraudulent and swears that they won't let the winner take office. And that kicks off this, uh, you know, this, this just terribly timely 
political ballad where Garfield plays the most active role in trying to stop the second civil war that everybody then thought was coming in the aftermath of this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, the, the election of 1876 is obviously fascinating. People have written about it for a while. Obviously, in more modern times, people have kind of, I've seen pieces written about it and some comparisons and stuff. But mm. um, it, it seems that <clears throat> a lot of people, once, you know, Hayes got in there, you know, within shortly right after, a lot of people were like, just ready for it to be over, even before it kind of began. And so I, I wonder how much so so this kind of dips into like Garfield's uh, presidency here, which is my understanding of reading the book was that there was somewhat of a kind of, again, I don't like comparing, but like there was a, like a lot of pressure, right? The last presidential election was, I mean, I mean, disputed, it was contentious, it was ugly, it wasn't great. Um, almost in the same way of like, uh, you know, when Carter got elected, everyone wanted to make sure, granted, that wasn't an election thing, but the last presidency, the last administration, wanted to make sure it was, you know, uh, ethical and on the books. I guess, how did Garfield find himself as the Republican nominee and and how that kind of happened and then kind of the, the pressure of the election of uh, 1880? It's very funny you mentioned Carter because that's exactly what came to mind. Maybe ten seconds before you mentioned that, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. because Hayes was this one-term president who had very—he he was elected as this outsider, this out-of-state governor. Sorry, this out-of-Washington governor like mm -hmm. Carter, yep. who came in with very high-minded ideas of reform, of cleaning up—you know—the way of the swamp, of cleaning up how Washington works, and being this. Um, palate cleanser from the perceived corruption of what came before mm -hmm. you know every presidency is a reaction to the one that came before sure. that's, that, that's the rule of our thing and hayes certainly was that and republicans and democrats united in hatred of it <laughs> but the way garfield ended up being president was by desperately at least outwardly trying not to be mm -hmm. uh he you know, the to to back up a little bit, the length of his career uh, being what it was, he had seen a lot of friends and a lot of mentors uh, decide that that they were going to run for the White House and that they were going to be the next president, that they had that potential. And Garfield watched friend after friend succumb to that vision and then follow it almost mirage like to their political doom. And he saw that so many times he wrote of it. And you, 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 again, you saw this in the book, he wrote of it as the presidential fever. Mm -hmm. He described it as this disease that infects very capable statesmen in Washington. And he said, he would write that as soon as somebody suffered it, all of their usefulness went out the window and they, and, and their career would, you know, uh, end because they would realize they had the presidency before them and they would mess it up and everything that made them good at politics went away <laughs> and i think you could argue you see that still today yeah, you, still, you still see that today there, there's, <laughs> yeah, there's yeah. people that run for president that after they run for president you just don't hear from them again it just kind yeah. of ruins them it just yeah, tanks yeah. exactly and they realize it's there before them mm -hmm. so uh be having been this having established himself as this pragmatic reasonable kind unifying figure in the republican party who everybody could get along with throughout the hayes administration and through most of grant's Garfield then started getting approached towards the end of the Hayes administration by people who were looking for an alternative to the declared candidates. Mm. You had from one faction of the one of those factions of the Republican Party, the Stalwarts, 
the Stalwarts wanted Grant back. They wanted the third term of Grant and they wanted all of the the spoils, the corruption that came with that. They wanted to basically monetize the federal government for themselves personally. That was a big part of the Stalwart mindset. And then you had the half-breeds who were running James Blaine, their hero, their leader, also for the presidency for what I think was then the second time. And, and no one could stomach Blaine either. Uh, you know, So Republicans were desperate for somebody else to run. And they started approaching Garfield, who was the House Minority Leader by that time. And Garfield was outwardly saying, please don't make me do this. Don't you, you know, I, 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 this, this would be an absolute travesty. I, I am dedicated to another candidate. And he was, he was dedicated to William Sherman. Um, but he, and he wrote this terrific line, which was like, uh, I, I, I can't bear the thought of my own, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, I can't bear the thought of my own presidency. There's too much productivity in me to see an end to it all. Because <laughs> He'd been this useful, pragmatic person in this divisive time, and he'd been through, let me recount, Lincoln, Johnson, Grant, Hayes. He had been through so many presidents by that point, and he'd seen them all go in on great hopes, and he'd seen them all fail. Uh, uh, no one leaves the White House happy. That's another rule of American politics. And so he's, he, he was this, this idea of his own White House, he was, he was very afraid of it. But then... He has to go to the convention where they're picking a candidate because he's he's this representative of another candidate Mm -hmm. and circumstances start aligning. And he gets he has either the fortune or the misfortune Mm -hmm. to throughout this almost operatic convention, say the right thing at the right time in front of the right people throughout the better part of a week. Mm -hmm. And there's a reasonable question about whether he wanted the presidency or not, really. I think he wasn't entirely sure if he did or not, Mm. but he ended up leaving the convention as the nominee. He got picked off the floor when the party couldn't decide between its candidates. And so they decided we need to go with the person everybody can stomach. And that happens to be, you know, James Garfield, who's who we all liked already and then who happened to perform so admirably throughout the convention. So it's, it's fun to read about. I don't know if you like that chapter or not. No, it's just very interesting. I find I used to not like uh, the stories of kind of elections, but I think, oh, I mean, I think since the 2000 election, I've become more intrigued by them. <laughs> of like, you know, the 2000 election was interesting. The 2008 obviously was interesting. Uh, obviously, 2016 and 2020. So, they, they, you know, and these are presidential elections. Obviously, there's some interesting midterms in there more recently. So as I've read more history, I'm like, oh, OK, I have a little bit more of a respect for it. Um, and, and and interesting about running campaigns and what works and what doesn't. And so it's 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 become a, a thing I've grown to like in, in reading uh, these stories. I guess the question is, is so when he when he gets the nomination, so again, as we mentioned, there's all this stuff happened, Civil War Reconstruction, you know, stuff with 1876, the Hayes uh, uh, administration. So what is he running on, right? Like what, what would be in the front page news? What would be, you know, getting uh, clicks on the internet if he was running a campaign? Like what, what were the kind of issues he ran on in his campaign? Uh, and how did, how did it, I guess, kind of turn out in terms of electoral college and popular vote? Like did he... Did he soar in there? Did he get the edge of his teeth? Like, you know, again, as we talked about, there was a little bit of pressure here from the previous presidential election. So, yeah, what was what were the major themes and issues he ran on and, and how did it end up 
Yeah, he certainly ran on what I'd say was the most delicate, moderate platform possible for somebody trying to bridge the Republican lines at that time. In terms of civil rights in the South, which were, you know, indubitably linked, he had to walk this line of that all Republican presidents after that period, and this is before the parties got jumbled as they as they are today Mm -hmm. uh he had to walk this line of not apologizing for the reconstruction amendments not apologizing for the uh creation of equal rights between the races but also being against the idea of the federal government intervening in the south Mm -hmm. to to get things back equal again and that was a very careful line because he had to be critical of what he knew were you know outrageous repressions of the black vote and worse in the south but he also knew that voters around the country just didn't want to worry about the south again and so he had he had to do he had he had to on that line he had to walk carefully enough where you know, it was this 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 very thin razor's edge uh, line on the issue. And then the second major issue, and this was critical for the Hayes administration, it would tragically be critical for the Garfield administration, was civil service reform. Mm-hmm. Uh, so these days, Americans are used to their bureaucrats being uh, apolitical. They're used to their uh, their uh, you know their tax assessor their marshal, their post office worker, not being identified primarily by their politics. You know, your 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 post office worker isn't this democratic appointee of your local congressman. Your your sheriff is not like some crony of the senator. Mm-hmm. These are like professional mm-hmm. public servants. In Garfield's time and for most of Garfield's career, that was absolutely not the case. Um, what you had was instead this system where most positions in the federal government were up to congressmen and senators to decide. So you had this incredibly corrupt system where um, politicians of various stripes would organize machines, rings, where they would monetize offices in the federal government and put cronies in it and then use that to profit personally and politically. Mm. So civil service reform was this movement that kicked up in this period of cleaning up the federal government, of professionalizing it, of creating a professional federal bureaucracy. And Hayes had been elected in great part on this issue, uh, and he had failed utterly because he he wasn't corrupt enough to secure clean reforms, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. So Garfield had learned that lesson, and Garfield had spent a lot of his congressional career kind of you know, weaving between the the lines on this issue. And Garfield had to say, yes, I'm in favor of some civil service reform, but we also need to be practical. He told one reformer, the goal of politics is to wield the forces so as not to destroy the end to be gained. Mm-hmm. And that was his very kind way of saying, you know, you have to make deals with devils every now and then. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, so on civil service reform, he was this he had to get the bosses of his own party, especially mm-hmm. the stalwarts back in. And part of the way he did that was by picking his vice president, Chester Mm -hmm. Arthur. Mm -hmm. Chester Arthur had been maybe the most infamous of these cronies, of these machine Mm -hmm. politicians. He had been the customs house collector of the Port of New York, Mm -hmm. which made him the most highly paid person on the continent, pretty much. And uh, because he'd been allowed to personally take a cut of whatever fines were imposed on imports into the the Port of Manhattan, which... Mm -hmm. That, that ends up filling your pockets pretty quick. Mm-hmm. Uh, for at least a lot of his career, he was allowed to do that. So Garfield picked Arthur as this 
this this gesture to the stalwart wing of his party like look i'll give you your spoils i'll give you your cut of the loot just get me in the office mm-hmm. that was another thing he ran on although he was very careful about how he phrased that mm-hmm. and then another issue that came up in the uh in the campaign was i'd say there are two other issues actually one was immigration particularly chinese immigration right. that was a very big issue in the west and that's mm-hmm. that's kind of a civil rights battle Mm-hmm. that not a lot of Americans think of or really know that much about these days. Mm-hmm. And then the other issue was like the balance between capital and labor. Mm-hmm. Uh, Garfield was, you know, this was, this was the kind of the first presidential run in the Gilded Age. Uh, you had uh, John D. Rockefeller uh, or Rockefeller as mm-hmm. Garfield misspelled his name, becoming this campaign contributor. You had Jay Gould mm-hmm. trying to buy a Supreme court seat through Garfield as a candidate you know, he had to deal with these issues of like, how do we uh, balance these these influences in American society, labor versus industrial capital? Yeah. So that was another big issue. He ended up winning mm-hmm. and he ended up winning by uh, he, he, he also was. Uh, he, well, I won't go too deep into that, but he he won by what was on the surface, a very narrow vote. But it at least a narrow popular vote, but he won the swing states of Indiana and New York pretty decisively. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that ended up the, the country's reaction was essentially it was a narrow but legitimate victory. Mm-hmm. And because it was that the whole country was relieved because mm-hmm. the precedent of the election before 1876 remained still very much in doubt. And half the country still thought that that had been a stolen election. So people were just happy that there was a legitimate result that everybody trusted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's that's obviously very important to have. Yeah. Um, I don't know. You think? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I guess what? So he he gets into to, to office, and you know we had just celebrated a hundred years as a country, and so I guess just generally, what do you think his vision was for the country? So he makes all these campaign promises, but as we as we as I mentioned earlier, and as you mentioned in the book, he, you know he was only president for about six months. Um, you know, and, and we can talk a little bit about the assassination, but. Um, I guess he had plans for, like you said, reforms of civil service, obviously education, uh, the national debt. Um, and so uh, curious about what his mindset was on foreign policy issues as well. And I guess the one thing I want to know, uh, you can talk about vision, some of those issues if you want, but I guess six months, I mean, it's like, I mean, six months nowadays you're still filling the government like you're still filling positions like you're still you're doing that really the first year year and a half even if you have a really good transition campaign so Mm. like what did he actually accomplish in six months as president um and this kind of ties into like the whole kind of legacy thing of sorts like what can we say like hey look yes it was it ended prematurely but what can we say if he if he didn't see it all the way through because again it's so short, what was he instrumental in getting the ball rolling? And I, I mean, I think of JFK a lot of the times where JFK, you know, had kind of sort of gets half credit for some of the stuff LBJ did. You know, people fight about that, but for him, six months is so short. So what can we say he actually accomplished or really was instrumental in getting that ball rolling for things? Yeah, if we're going to leave aside the big issues that he flagged in his inaugural address, which were, uh, you know. Uh, getting civil service reform through uh, controlling the national debt and then also public education as this uh, solution across America. He, he did a few different things. One of the most interesting things that he did was he actually used a lot of his appointment authority to appoint 
prominent African Americans, Black Americans, to positions of federal power using his presidential authority. So he put men like Frederick Douglass, like Bruce Blanche, who was the nation's uh, first Black senator, mm-hmm. uh, into who had who had been who had unsurprisingly lost his re-election after you know the after the the after 1876 mm. um he used his appointment authority to put a lot of these prominent black americans in the federal government and this the, he was not the first to do so but he did so on a scale that normalized this very and it's this very and that's the thing about garfield's leadership it's very subtle mm. but it normalized the spectacle of black men in positions of like federal power Mm-hmm. And and that and that's something Frederick Douglass actually wrote very actively about, mm-hmm. and that ended up setting a norm that was followed pretty much through to the civil rights era of the next century. Mm-hmm. It was a way mm-hmm. of what I'd say I'll put this in quotes: progressive presidents mm-hmm. to send a signal to black voters that they were with them on their side without going over a line, mm-hmm. be that the Mason-Dixon line <laughs> or a line in like white voters' uh, minds everywhere about mm-hmm. like offending sensibilities and things Mm. like so garfield was kind of ahead of his issue and one of the things he actually did he had a meeting with frederick douglas and he asked frederick douglas to recommend um prominent black citizens who might make good ambassadors to europe Mm. and and that was seen as douglas was like i don't believe you and then and then then, uh and, and then garfield brought in james blaine who everybody thought was the secret power in the administration. And then Frederick Douglass was suddenly like, okay, maybe this is real. <laughs> and so that was, that, that's exciting. Um, he also, Garfield also uh, put in motion the establishment of the American branch of the Red Cross, which is mm. also very interesting. Mm, interesting. But, you know, you speak of presidents being frustrated by all these appointments you had to make. That was the defining issue of the Garfield administration as well. All these small victories he had on other things um, were vastly overwhelmed by uh, staffing the federal government. Because to go back to the civil service issue, uh, when there is no professional bureaucracy, it means pretty much everybody on the on the, on the public payroll has to fight for their place with the decision makers. And so the Garfield White House was stacked morning, noon, and night. With hundreds of people who were either begging to keep their jobs in the federal government or who were seeking them, saying, "Look, I gave the speech for you during the campaign in you know uh, Smallsville, Montana, mm-hmm. and they voted for you. Mm-hmm. I'm your supporter. Make me the second <laughs> attorney general of this territory." Like, like it was just it was bananas. Imagine today if President Biden had to personally sign off on every single person who was a public <laughs> servant in America. That was the Garfield administration. That was wow. part of the big motivation of mm-hmm. civil service reform because reformers were like pointing at this spectacle that started every administration mm-hmm. and saying, look at this. This is crazy. This is this is this, this is corrupt run on power by people who like monetize their offices and like form these corrupt ranks and rig elections. Mm-hmm. And uh, we need to create some standards for our public servants. And so Garfield was putting in motion ways to do that, or at least he said he was. And this uh, came up very, this led to his assassination. Mm. It led, it was directly tied to his attempt to forge peace in the Republican Party, the stalwarts, that wing that he made those deals with. Mm. They came calling and they weren't happy with the, the positions in the federal government he was giving their loyalists. So they basically went to war with him. And mm. Garfield's attempt to treat with them, to give them part of the loot, was 
met with this demand for more of it. And Garfield basically threw down his pen in frustration. And all of a sudden you had this civil war in the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. And you had these bosses, the heads of the machines, these political machines were called bosses. It was a great, you, you've heard boss tweed. That's a mm-hmm. good example of a mm-hmm. political boss. Mm-hmm. They went to war with Garfield and including Chester Arthur, his vice president. The vice president went to, you know, went to war with the own president, which is amazing. Uh, and um, the rhetoric and the infighting that resulted inspired essentially a mentally unstable man mm. to decide that if he shot Garfield, that Chester Arthur would become the president. And Chester Arthur would be so grateful that he would give this man whatever job in the federal government the man wanted so it was this intersection of garfield trying to do the right thing right thing in this case being um keeping the corrupt wing of the republican party happy so you can argue about the morality of that Mm -hmm. and then this systemic this nationwide disgust with this system that we had back then intersecting with his shooting and that's and, and he didn't die immediately so that's when that's when the great narrative of his assassination kicks off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I guess what I ask you about that. So yeah, you talk about 80 days he was around uh, hanging on. I mean, he's still, I guess, technically president. I mean, that had to have been a tenuous period of, well, is, is he, is he, I mean, he's, he's here, but he's not here. He's, he's, you know, and then he, unfortunately he does pass. Um, I guess, I mean, this, there's the specifics of that, but then there's just a kind of the temperature of the country of like, Yikes, we've had two presidential assassinations in 15 years. Like, you know, that has to, you know, again, after a civil war, trying to rebuild. I guess what was the, like, you know, pulse of the the country at that point from, you know, seeing what was going on? And then I guess it, within the administration, especially if there was always infighting, you know, how did they kind of handle those 80 days that he was, you know, kind of hanging on there a little bit? It was, so his shooting was a almost instant antidote to this culture of partisan infighting and this atmosphere of it Mm. that had torn the nation apart for certainly his administration, but also in a sense far, far longer. Mm. Uh, The fact that he had been shot and he survived, he was the first, you know, we talk about him being the second president to be assassinated. He was the first one to be wounded, mortally wounded, and to hang on. And, And the suspense that that created in the country seemed like this massive cure to this awful partisan rhetoric that had kicked off and contributed in so many ways to his death. So the political reaction was that the stalwart wing of the party, the one that had gone to quote unquote war with him, they were immediately essentially um, exiled by the country. The the political backlash to them was massive and immediate. Um, The only one who ended up actually being saved ironically was Chester Arthur because Chester Arthur was ultimately a pawn in a lot of this. He was not the top man of the Stalwarts. He answered to the top man of the Stalwarts, mm. but he was so distraught and so terrified himself of becoming president that he underwent this. He, he went into exile basically in New York as Garfield was dying and underwent this political conversion that culminated in civil service reform, ironically. Mm. And then um, the, the country basically spent 80 days in suspense uh, as Garfield was in the White House and his doctor started saying he was recovering and his his condition fluctuated back and forth. And he became this martyr because when people looked at the context of how he'd been shot and he had been shot by somebody who was 
seeking office who wanted to shoot him so that he would become a benefit of this patronage system. The, the effect on the reform movement was like an accelerant. It was like gasoline to a fire. Um, the civil service reform historians have written that Garfield's shooting accelerated the reform movement by easily decades because it crystallized the issue and the morality of the issue so quickly and succinctly that uh, he that 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 the tide essentially could not be resisted and so it culminated after garfield's death in the passage of the civil service reform act so in in death his legacy was to uh be this he's he's the reason why we have a professional federal bureaucracy today and why your interaction and our listeners interactions with the government they don't need to walk into a post office and, you know, receive the question, are you a Republican or are you a Democrat? Did you vote for Congressman X? <laughs> and like, you know, mm-hmm. so, so it ended up being this uh, big cause, but you had uh, in terms of individual reactions, you had people walking into the white house and walking up to the white house saying, please let me see the president. I can cure him. Mm-hmm. You had women being institutionalized across the country because there's more than one report I found in my research of women being found by a judge to be mentally incompetent because they were insane. And I quote on the subject of president Garfield's illness, Mm. (laughs) you had uh, Alexander Graham Bell, who was already famous as the inventor of the telephone. Mm -hmm. Graham Bell invented perhaps the world's first metal detector Mm. to find the bullet in Garfield's body. Uh, And so it was this, uh, and what ended up actually killing him, it wasn't the gunshot wound. I should clarify Mm. It was an infection. Mm-hmm. He died of infection that was introduced by his doctors because his doctors, American doctors at the time, they did not widely believe in germ theory. That was mm-hmm. a European idea invented by Dr. Joseph Lister. Uh, and Lister's idea was that there are these microscopic, there are these invisible organisms that infiltrated wounds and make, made, you know, induced infection. And there's this great quote that I have in the book from uh a doc, an American doctor of that time, which is, if we are to believe Mr. Lister's ideas, then we must think that the whole world around us is coated in these invisible organisms. You know, what a ludicrous idea. <laughs> and you're reading this in the modern time and you're like, well, you kind of nailed it, buddy. Uh, so, so it was his, 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 this is the reason that his assassination has been written about so widely and so well is because it was this culmination of technological national you know, prog- all, all condensed into a president's life, or at least how it ended. Mm. And uh, in death, he became this great martyr. There, are so, I, I encourage readers to go to Google Maps and type in um, Garfield just mm. into like, the search bar, and they'll find streets, avenues, cities, hospitals, high schools, mm. all named after him. It was because after he died, the nation went into this period of intense mourning, mm. and then, ironically, ended up pretty much forgetting about him. Mm. Uh, and so, and again, to go full circle back to the beginning, uh, the the spectacle of that death overshadowed what I thought was an incredibly significant uh, life, and one that was poetic and compelling. This culmination of the American dream, this attempt of somebody to keep the country united, or at least functioning in this divisive era. And uh, somebody who was terrified of the office that ended up killing them mm. uh, because of the way they tried to lead when they were in it. So that the, the, there is some, uh, there is something in, or maybe many things in that to learn from. Um, that's one of the difficulties of being a biographer is uh, 
people often ask you, what is the lesson? Mm-hmm. Well, there are multiple lessons in there and some will actually see different ones mm-hmm. than I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so, you know, I, I've already received interesting feedback from very different sides of the spectrum on what his life was really about and whether he was a admirable man or not, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is an indication that you've kind of hit the nail on the head mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if, mm-hmm. if you're getting both sides. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was, that was my, my last question is not what is the lesson, but I guess how do we understand accurately the legacy that he has, which could be a variety of things, right? Which is kind of what you're saying. Obviously there's a the stuff about his death that kind of, uh, is memorialized but there's also many things about his life some of the things that i uh, tried to highlight here about his time in the house uh, some of his stuff Mm. uh, during the war but for you what what you know in writing the book and what you hope readers take away from it is how do we have the kind of rightful legacy of 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 garfield sure so if i might go past the civil service reform if i might go past his participation in you know, the reconstruction era and the policies he created. What I'd say, I'd say there are two main lessons that I take from his life. Uh, one is that all of these issues that we perceive in, in, in crises that we today in America seem to think are unprecedented are actually not. The themes of these issues, the uh, polarization we're experiencing, the rhetoric and the debate we have in public often about the nature of America, the promise of America, and whether it's true or not, these have all happened before. Even a disputed presidential election where the loser, you know, cries fraud and can't, you know, can't back it up. Uh, that the, the, these things have, uh, they, ha- they have precedent in our nation. And we have not only engaged fiercely with them throughout our time uh, and wrestled with them, uh, we have found some way better or worse to manage and move past them only to discover them down the line. Uh, And so that kind of moves on to what I think is the second lesson, which is Garfield was this great compromiser of his time. He really exemplified the deals the country made with itself to keep itself together in this terribly challenging bleak period of reconstruction in the Gilded Age because uh, he was present for all of those. And you hear in a lot of the political rhetoric today, when we're around our dinner tables, when we're by ourselves, we tell ourselves, why can't people in Washington just get together and do the common sense thing? Why can't they get together and make a deal? Garfield's life and what he stood for and the type of politics he represented is an excellent case of both the positives And then in some ways, the negatives of being a compromiser, of being this person who's just determined to give everybody at the table something to walk away with. Mm. Because what is compromise, I'd argue, if not deferring the solution of some of our most serious problems to the next generation? Mm. Sometimes that's necessary, but that comes with a terrible cost very often. Uh, and one that is um, smoothed out over the course of not one generation, but centuries. Mm. And, and and so I think that's a big lesson of his life. Uh, the hardest question is one that you've very wisely refrained from asking, which is, do you like Garfield? 
you know, do you, as a biographer, the question no one wants to ask is like, well, do you like him? And I, I think I would find him one of the most charming people on the planet. I think I would find him this incredible intellect. And I think I would find him again, this, 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 as he was viewed at the time, he was described as the most impressive American of any period by Rutherford Hayes of all people. So another president was looking at Garfield and saying, no one had ever, this is a quote, no one had ever started so low who accomplished so much in all of our country's history. And that's one president talking about another one, Garfield. So, uh, so I, I think I would find him the epitome of the American dream and I would be inspired by him, but he was also pathologically reasonable. And as a pathologically reasonable person myself, I can't help but recognize that that is there, there is both nobility and then a little bit of impurity in mm-hmm. pragmatism. And he exemplifies that beautifully, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and what a writer. But mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That, that's going to get me jealous if I start talking about what, how good of a writer he was. <laughs> For sure, yeah. Well, the book is called President Garfield from Radical to Unifier. It's through uh, Simon & Schuster. It's out on July 4th. Um, where is the best place for uh, folks to find yourself, whether online or anywhere else? Oh, I'd, I'd say it's uh, it's up to them, however they prefer. So yeah, any retailer, you know, go go ahead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Fantastic. Fantastic. All righty. Well, this was absolutely wonderful. Uh, I love the book. Uh, I learned a whole bunch. Uh, it's a few things I knew and there's so much I didn't. And I think it's uh, it's absolutely wonderful. It's super readable. I think very digestible. And I think, uh, as you eloquently said, there's so many things we can learn from from uh, his life and his presidency. So big, 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 big thanks for, for coming on and uh, talking all about it. Well, the pleasure was all mine, I assure you. Thank you for giving me your time. Absolutely, absolutely.